0: Why does so much modern research feel based on flimsy and obvious, quote, insights, end quote? This week, Chaz talks with further and further's chief strategy officer, Megan Weisenberger, on the concept of day five brands, what they are, how to become one, and why we should all be more open to digging just a little bit deeper. We also dive into Megan's career path into research, underrated American cities, celebrity sightings in North Dakota, and the emergent friskiness of the Minnesota Timberwolves. I'm Britt, and this is the Furious Curious Podcast.
1: Megan Weisenberger, how are we?
2: Charlie, I'm lovely. It's good to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, likewise. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the Furious Curious. Where Where do we find you today?
2: I'm in Brooklyn, New York. It's raining, but it's really nice to be home before Q four travel starts everywhere.
1: Where Where are you off to this Q four?
2: Uh, I go to London on Saturday, which I've not been to for a while, and then LA a couple times after that.
1: Oh, superb, superb! So, how um how have things been in the the research world? Uh, certainly, following the pandemic.
2: I mean, much better ages because we get to go talk to people in person again. I think everyone is getting very sick of doing zoom interviews. I mean, this one's lovely, but I mean, it's, it's a treat to go hang out with people in the houses again and have things more or less normal. Yeah. I think the research world is good. I think we find ourselves in a strange time, like always, right? Where everyone's like, it's really hard to talk about the state of coffee or sausages or what have you, when the world feels kind of fucked at the moment, sure. which is an interesting time to be in the research world, but also a strange one, I think.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, what, when you say that, when you say, like, it's an interesting time, what specifically about the time that we're in now? Obviously, there's, you know, some political challenges as we're talking, not just challenges, but, you know, horrific events. Um, mm-hmm. Is there, you know, at the same time, there are certain decades where not a whole lot happens, right? Um, do you feel yeah. like people are dist- more distracted now than they've ever been or thematically, are there any themes around that?
2: I mean, we did a project called Heavy, but I think that's what I find the most is that I've been a researcher for a long time, but I feel more like a therapist these days than I ever have before. Right? The most interviews (laughs) are like, okay, let's talk about shopping, or let's talk about youth, and ever like eventually you just get to people feeling heavy, and that like it feels very strange to be human right now because we're. I mean, even the disconnect between articles being like everything is great, the economy is thriving, and like people are good, we're back to normal, and everyone I talk to is like I don't feel like that at all, and so it feels like there's this disparity between what people are reading and what they're kind of being told they should feel and how they actually feel in their day-to-day lives, which is, I think, where a lot of my work comes in. But I think, I mean, in the last couple of years, I've talked more about anxiety and depression and the economy and all that stuff than I ever used to in this job.
1: Sure. I mean, it, it does sort of, there's that best of times, worst of times, Dickensian theme to it. I mean, do you, because a lot of us live in these media bubbles of our own creation, you know, reading self-affirming articles as opposed to ones that challenge us. Do you feel that that has created this, I guess, a false binary of best of times, worst of times, or it's just people have arrived at that independently? I
2: don't know if it's a false binary, but I do feel like there's such a massive gap between the meetings I'm in, right, where it's talking about streetwear, all this stuff, and then the people I talk to on a daily basis. where. I mean I did a recent project and they were like quite surprised that young people were buying so much used clothing and it was like yeah cuz they don't have any money dude like a $300 hoodie is like a pretty massive undertaking for them and I think that's that's the position more is to think around finances and how much the average person in America or the world is just struggling right now and I think how brands fit into that is kind of interesting.
1: It certainly does. I mean when you say would you say that's the primary driver like when, you know, I guess the feelings of, uh, you know, frugality as opposed to just, I guess, a changing cultural attitudes? Obviously, you know, Levi's last year, for example, had that campaign. You know, the mm-hmm. Levi's product is often, you know, not, doesn't change a whole lot, but mm-hmm. their whole angle was, you know, basically being the antithesis of fast fashion, of, of the, oh, we talk about, you know, the HMs of the world. And they had, what was it? buy buy better, wear longer. I mean, would you Mm -hmm. say there's these environmental concerns? Would you say there's other sort of economic concerns? What what would you say are sort of some of the things that really pop for you?
2: Mm, I think there's all sorts of concerns. I do think, I mean, it's just I'm really interested in people's finances, right, and how they're trying to figure out just how to live as human beings. I just had a project um, for a fintech brand that was talking about kind of people's goals and milestones and what they're aiming for. And people were like, I can't buy a house, right? It's like I don't even know if I can afford to have a kid. And it feels like all these massive kind of cultural touchstones that celebrated your success as an individual and were sort of like the cues and codes that you were making progress are really hard for people these days. And so I think it's part economically, people are trying to figure out like what progress looks like and like what they actually can afford to have a good life, even if it doesn't quite look the same as it might have in the past. But... I mean, yeah, also environmental stuff, but I think along with that, there's this desire to not be judged if you do buy H&M or buy Shein or buy fast fashion or whatever, too. Right? So like, I want to do better, but also that's hard sometimes, and I don't want to be shamed or scolded for that either.
1: Sure, sure. So, what would you say? I mean, like at, at further and further, where you are chief strategy officer, I've noticed this notion of is your day is your brand built on day one or day five insights? Yeah. I know this might be a little little while ago, but. Uh, Would you be able to, um, I guess, frame that for us in the most helpful way?
2: I'd love to talk about this. Yeah, I think research forever has been predicated on just kind of checking the box and, I mean, for a long time was focus groups, right, and not to completely shit talk those. They have a time and a place but you get so little out of those where people are, I mean, further and further was founded on the idea that in order to... Get to people's truths are the truth. You need to establish some sort of trust. And that when people are either sitting in a really sad gray focus group facility, like you've been in those, I've been in those. Oh, yes,
1: many. (laughs)
2: They're talking rotten, right? Like the highlight is getting to order a sad meal out of the little binder. And like, they're just kind of soulless. And you bring in all these strangers and you're like, okay, let's talk about money. And like, there's no imperative whatsoever to open up or say anything real in those rooms. And then that's, I mean, that's kind of the stark end of the spectrum that even when i used to do ethnographies or in-home stuff it was like you'd get an hour with people and you're supposed to like quickly build trust to get to like their hopes and dreams and their fears and their tensions but then also make sure to talk about the product for 25 minutes and then the film guy would get like 5 minutes to go film their bedroom and their fridge right and it like yeah. i just don't think that's how conversations work whether you're doing research or whether you're just out in the world so day 1 and day 5 was founded on the idea that Which is not a novel idea that if you build trust with people, you get to kind of more interesting, better insights and you just get to better conversations overall. And so day one is like, yeah, you can definitely learn stuff about people on that first day and they'll tell you some stuff. But a lot of the time, day one is kind of what people want you to hear or what they expect you to hear. Right. So like a project about money, someone on day one might be like, oh, yeah, I have no stress about it. I just budget like everything's fine. Me and my partner never argue about target runs or what have you and then but day five or what we call it is we tend to spend a full week with people and so you might talk to them on their own you might talk to them and their friends you might talk to them and their partner and you just kind of become friends with them and what you get at the end of that process is massively different than when you get on day one where you're kind of a stranger that they're trying to impress not in a bad way right like everyone just wants to give the shiny version of themselves across but often the shiny version is not the real version of people I think the more time you spend and the more time you're just like, I'll show you my hopes and fears and dreams if you'll show me yours, right? And I think that's that's part of it too, that the more time you spend with people and the more time you just like genuinely have a give-and-take relationship or conversation that you get to a lot more interesting stuff at the end of it.
1: Sure. So what I'm hearing is you're the disintegrator of facades or false facades, false veneers. Would you say that's a fair statement?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a very (laughs) – that's a lovely statement. I'll happily take that.
1: No, j- just as you were talking then I remember reading an article years ago Michael Lewis was talking about okay. interviewing athletes and he said that the best way in order to to get the truth out of athletes is to go back with them to their high school or okay. their you know the where they where they used to play as a child because okay. just creating that environment allows them to is a you know is disarming right? Mm-hmm. It, they're, they're in a, a more natural environment, a more sort of childlike environment, innocent environment that you're actually peeling back the onion in the most helpful way, as opposed to the way you describe the interrogation rooms, which feels like in focus groups. Yeah. It, it, there's yeah, it just feels there's so-
2: 30 people behind that wall, but just like pretend they're not there. And you're like, it's already fucked from the get go of like just an unnatural feeling, little goldfish bowl that you're in.
1: I missed putting the, um, a post-it over the apple logo that illuminates on the laptop because that goes through the two-way glass. I remember always everyone <laughs> was
2: that. Definitely. Just like this, this creepy sheen behind the glass and you're like that's no one back there. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It's like awkward like notes are raced in from the back room. I love that athletes back to their high school though. And I think just switching environments but also like if I wanted to get the truth from athletes, I'd love to interview their high school weightlifting coach or their high school football coach or what have you, right? And, like, talk about who that – I just think you get interesting perspectives on people when you look at them from every angle versus just asking them to talk about themselves and their experiences.
1: I totally agree. And it's the essence of great, you know, documentary filmmaking, right? Whether it's – remember that the documentary on whether it's um, the Jordan one, the OJ one, mm-hmm. recently the Beckham one. Like, it's the the secretary at the at Manchester United. Where you get some interesting insights about what Beckham is really like as opposed to, you know, Alex Ferguson, which you you could probably guess a lot of those who was the manager, his manager.
0: Well,
1: that's fabulous. I'd love to back up a little bit because the research industry is quite, I mean, for the layperson, it, it is quite niche, right? They might say, okay, what is this? I mean, how does one find themselves as a professional researcher? How I'd just love to extend that question to you. How did you choose this path?
2: I mean, I think most good researchers kind of stumble into it. There's no like proper training to be one, or there might be, but I missed it. I started in advertising in Minneapolis and was kind of a weird mixture of both account planner and copywriter and just switched between them and spent a little bit of time on the client side. I was at General Mills. And then, but a barometer I've always kind of used is who am I jealous of and why? <laughs> what that says about my own life. And I found that we kept hiring researchers when I was in the ad world to go do the projects that I wanted to do. Right. Like one of our clients was, a ski mountain and we like hired this woman to go hang out with ski bums for a month. And I was like, why am I giving her that project and the money when I'm sitting here in this conference room doing stuff that's much less interesting than that? So yeah, I was probably 25, which is young to get disillusioned with the ad industry. But I feel like I kept hopping agencies and finally was like, Oh, it's, it's me. It's not advertising. Mm-hmm. Like just, this is not exactly where I want to be. And there's nothing wrong with it. Right. It just wasn't quite the right fit for me. And I think part of it is that. What I was doing, which is a mix of both planning and writing is it felt kind of so far down the funnel of like the questions that I found most interesting, which was like the cultural ones or the big business questions. And they all felt like they happened much earlier. And then it was like, okay, Meg, go write some one liners about this. Like it felt like the answer had already been provided. And then it was up to me to sort of execute it. I think in general, I like big, heavy, tricky questions, both grappling with them and answering them. And it felt like research was much closer to that part of it than what I was doing. How? So I, I go for it.
1: I'm sorry to admit to cut you
2: off. <laughs> You're good. I applied to a job in New York, had zero training as a researcher, but somehow talked my way into that and then moved here and kind of figured it out.
1: Well, that's fascinating. I mean, do you, and, and how, how have you felt about the, the career move ever since?
2: I just genuinely like my job. I think it's the closest to me getting paid to do what I would want to do anyway, which is, read and write and talk to people and hang out and travel and kind of make sense of the world. And this is the closest I've gotten to doing just, I think a job that would be how I live my life anyway. Got it. Got it. I've way less existential angst than I used to when I was in the quote unquote ad world.
1: Why do you think that is?
2: Um, I think it is that I've, feel like I have more freedom to both get to the truth and tell the truth, right? I think sometimes the way that agency relationships with clients are, there's a lot of just like, just kind of shut up and do it. And that's not true of every agency, but it was at some of them that I was at. And I think being a researcher, you have the freedom of like, it's not my opinion. I'm just telling you what the people said, right? <laughs> like you kind of get to be the, the conveyor of stories from the field. And I find there's a lot of freedom in getting... To just tell the truth versus pretend things are a different way, other than they are.
1: Sure, sure. Is there something from your upbringing? Is there something from your childhood that made you that way, do you think?
2: Mm, A good question. I mean, there's probably, I I grew up in North Dakota, which is a bit of a passive aggressive environment. (laughs) Like, yeah. Go Bison. It's funny, Charlie. I keep getting asked if I'm Australian and I'm like, no, I'm from fucking Fargo. Like, I could not be further, could not be further away from this accent being Australian, but I get it all the time in New York right now. Um Yeah. I think, I think growing up in a culture where people didn't always talk about their feelings a lot that my pendulum swung probably very, very far the other way. But yeah, I mean, I've just been a reader my whole life and I think that that has also contributed to research suiting me where I get to just intake a lot of stuff whether it is the written word or whether it's just people's people stories, right? I feel like this is the closest to like getting to read human beings that a job is. And I'm just kind of interested in in taking a lot and trying to make sense of that however I can.
1: Sure, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm sorry you probably get this the way I get asked does the toilet water flush the other way. <laughs> but uh where in Australia but what's your overall ta- as a North Dakotan, what is your overall take on Chuck Klosterman?
2: It's funny. I feel like He's one of the only, I see him every year at Christmas at the bar. Um, there's that like one night before Christmas Eve where everyone goes out and Chuck's there like fucking clockwork. I love his books. I haven't read the last couple, but I think when I was growing up, like Sex, Drugs and Cocoa Puffs was such a formative reading experience. Did you read his recent one about the 90s?
1: I have. I've read, funnily enough, I've read every one of his books except Fargo Rock City. Which is his first. (laughs) And I'm a little, you know, I'm, I don't don't know if I'm aging out, but he's been my hero for many years. And I I think there is a, you know, there's a curmudgeonhood to his writing. There is a, you know, artistic panache. There is a blending of the highbrow and the Mm lowbrow. There is a fascination with culture as well as, you know, going extremely deep into music, movies, sports. I mean, all the things that I'm naturally interested in, Mm -hmm. there is a an incredibly dry sense of humour and just deadpan delivery, which is utterly hilarious. Sometimes every Mm -hmm. book I have of his is full of underlines. I've underlined it like crazy and I'll often find myself Work, you know, working some of the language into just general conversation, or it might be a, a business, new business scope that I have to write, and I'm like, "Well, oh, that yeah. sounds a bit like Chuck Klosterman," <laughs> and uh, so I don't, I don't know why, but but that's he's been my hero for a long time. I mean, does that? I don't know. Does that sound cheesy? That is a
2: good answer. No, it doesn't sound cheesy at all. Which is your favorite book of his? Oh, jeez. Favorite children.
1: Yeah. Look. It's it's hard uh, hard to pin one down. Probably um, was it killing yourself to live? I mm-hmm. think it was it was beautiful. But I also loved elements of Downtown Owl, yeah. which I believe they just turned into a movie. I heard it's not that great,
2: but I went to it at the oh. it a Tribeca Film Festival a couple months ago, and it, the movie is not that great. It felt kind of like wannabe Coen Brothers. I would say <laughs> like the, we're trying to emulate this style, but we're not the Coen Brothers, so that's yeah. tricky. The Coen Brothers, but. I think it's one of the first times I've gotten to see my homeland in film narrative, right? Like, even just the, the landscape. There's not it. tons of stuff being made in rural nowhere in North Dakota, and I greatly enjoyed that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and also to be that Raised in Captivity, which is a series of short stories, some, like, utterly absurdist, just mm-hmm. completely off the wall, but hilarious. And, like, he, he wrote for a period as the, was it the ethicist for the New York Times, where yeah. he, he sort of grapples with some complex moral issues, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So I'd I highly recommend that one as well. But but what's, what's your favorite?
2: Mm, I do think it's Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And I don't know that I have a super articulate answer about it, but I think it's, you know, those the books and the music and the movies that hit you at those young impressionable ages? Yeah. I think that's the first one of like little angsty 16-year-old Megan Fargo was like, ooh, someone else gets it here, right? And I, it's like not objectively his best by any means, but I think it just hit me at the right time. And it's that one.
1: Sure, sure. So, in terms of, you know, you, you've been with you coming further and further for, for a period now. I mean, how are you feeling about the industry in general? Is there anything in, in the research space that you feel is, you know, that you're excited about for 2024 and beyond?
2: Mm-hmm. I feel excited that the whole research space feels like it's evolving and not just cuz of us but I think in general the more you bring kind of real beautiful sometimes heavy sometimes ugly stuff to clients they're like oh this this does feel real right and that so much of research for the last however long has just been we need to test a campaign or like we're kind of obligated to go do these 6 1-hour ethnos right now and it feels like the more you kind of push what research can be I mean, I think what's been nice for me is it feels like I'm proud of my work again, or it feels much more kind of artistic and real and beautiful than I think past lives of mine have felt. But it does feel like the whole industry is starting to figure out that perhaps just doing quant surveys and focus groups is not necessarily helping you understand the complicated human experience right now.
1: And it, it is. Feels like it is. Yeah. It's like
2: easier to yeah. sell to clients than it used to be, I think, where like now that they've kind of seen what it can look like and can make you feel. That's what I'm excited about. Is it feels like the whole industry is kind of like, oh, yeah, we could do this a lot better. And we've been doing it for a long time.
1: And the human experience is messy, right? Like, Mess- you know, two things can be right. Three things can be right at the same time. A million things can be. And <laughs> there is this sort of, you know, false conceit of, of correctness when you're looking at a qual or stuff. Well, you know, sometimes they can be uh, illustrative and directional. But if you really want to get to the heart of the matter, you've really got to talk, talk to people. I remember, um, right after the 2016 election, because no one, no one predicted, well, not, mm-hmm. not no one, but not many, you know, if you'd looked at the numbers and the, um.
2: Yeah. We all felt quite so, surprised after that one. That was, yeah.
1: Like I was monitoring it every day. You know, the Nate Silver has the the 538 like the yeah. probability calculator. And I remember I, I happened to be working on a client in Barcelona at the time and like a lot of foreigners and this guy, he was, a uh, it was from the Isle of Man, uh, which is where my name originates from. So he was sort of, he couldn't believe that I, my last name was Quirk and it was quite a fascinating conversation. But like a lot of foreigners, he was, he followed American politics like it was sport. Like he was absolutely fascinated with the cast of characters and he, and he looked at me and he said, do you think Trump can win? And I said, look, I, I look at these numbers every day. He, you know, it fluctuates between him having a 15 or 20% chance of winning for the most part. So it looks like he's not going to win, but in my gut, I can't believe I'm saying this in my gut. I think he will. Mm-hmm. And for you, and I know after that, that the client at the time, like sent out an email to the, the, all the agency partners and said, Hey, we're, we're going to revisit how we view research because <laughs> of unpredictable things like that. Because, you know, the polls are infamous you know notoriously faulty i mean have you you mentioned before that that seems to be a sea change in client attitudes would you say that's that's holding true
2: i think a big one is clients for the first time being not just willing to go to the middle of the country or to kind of undervisited states but like really excited to i think that is the biggest lesson that came out of that election is that if you only talk to people on the coasts or quote-unquote coast elites that's the only things you'll understand, right? And so it feels like every project I get now is like, we need to include at least one Midwest city or we need to go yeah. to a rural area or we need to go to the suburbs. I think that's the thing, the 2016 election is like, a lot of these like attitudes were like quite prominent and rampant. Just no one talked to all those people who voted.
1: It, yeah. it is fascinating. Like just into, uh, like I, I've i been in meetings where someone has presented and they think the official term <laughs> for the middle of the country is flyover states like, like they don't realize it's a pejorative
2: it's a pejorative <laughs> like, yeah. i just got an rfp the other day to understand like what young people in the middle of the country actually think about being in the middle of the country and i yeah. can't think of a project i'd want to do more than like i would love to go to nowhere south dakota and talk to them about like their identity and what they strive for and i think we also have this kind of sweeping generalization in this country that, like, to be upwardly mobile, you need to go to the coast or big cities, and I kind of feel like that's changing too, where young people are like, no, I'd rather have a life I can afford surrounded by people I know and love right now. And I think that's interesting as well. Yeah,
1: it's almost like the value, like, uh, the coast already has the pricing baked in, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the times there's value to be gained. You know, obviously, Austin has probably jumped and and other parts. You know, Nashville's another place. You know denver to a degree i mean it feels like there is the opposite like what was always pigeonholed as the aspirational destinations are no longer would you say have you seen that in terms of talking to youth and just g- general aspirations where they want to end up
2: definitely with youth or even we did i wasn't on this project but we did a project around midwest food and what that means right now for fritos and talk to all the like both how many just immigrants the Midwest has, right? that A lot of people end up there, but all these young chefs being like, no, I can actually go forward to buy a restaurant and cook the food that I want to cook versus kind of fitting within the systems on the coast. And it feels like that's where, you know, I think about it as there are cities that are on the ascent and cities that are on the descent. And I feel like a lot of the coastal cities feel like they're kind of on their way down right now from their heyday, but it feels like places like Omaha or Minneapolis are like Birmingham. I don't know all these places that are not necessarily tier one cities I feel like there's actual energy there and people are trying to build something different in a way that I find kind of fascinating.
1: Is Des Moines having a moment?
2: Yeah, Des Moines definitely having a moment. Everyone every one of my clients wants to go to Kansas City, Missouri. That one comes up a lot. It's a great town. Yeah. They are great. Like I'm not I'm never mad about going to these towns where like I've been to Chicago a hundred million times for research. But I yeah, I would love to go to Des Moines and hang out for a while right now.
1: You know, I, it reminds me of um one of my father's friends, you know, passed a few years ago, cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they were talking about travelling, you know, for, for work or whatever it was. And he said, oh, you got to go here, you got to go here. And it was basically his response was around, like, I think my dad gave an answer. Like, he'd been asked to go to Cedar Rapids, equip- like that sort of place. <laughs> well, not Cedar Rapids, but not often seen as hyper-desirable. And my, my father's ailing friend, he said, oh, do you know if it's any good? And then my my father's ailing friend said, everywhere's good. You just go. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that's what's way more interesting to me now is like a place I've never been versus going to L.A. again, right? Like nothing against L.A., but a different client the other day was like, do you think it'd be interesting to go to West Virginia? And I was like, I'd eat my left arm off to be sent to small town Virginia or West Virginia. Just those places that have so much good, like you said, but no one ever goes to them or looks at those stories.
1: Yeah. Mountaineers are always free. I believe the state motto is, I don't know how I know
0: that, but
2: (laughs) I was oddly watching 60 minutes last night, which is not something I spent a lot of time doing, but they had a feature on the Mississippi Delta and blues music down there. And it's like, I would murder to go to Clarksburg, Mississippi, right? Like there's all these kind of weird offbeat, beautiful places, but generally marketing and advertising and research just focuses on um, New York, LA, Atlanta, Chicago, and like a Texas market.
1: Yeah, yeah. I is hate it- the
2: Texas markets, Charlie. Every client on the planet wants to go to Dallas and we all hate them the most.
1: Why is that? Because you're in a, some... Uh, I mean, the heat's pretty oppressive. The traffic's not great.
2: It's always least 120 degrees and yeah. you are in like Marriott and it's just like sweaty highways and everything's so far apart because it's so big there that it takes two hours to drive between everything. And it's just... I mean, Texas is fascinating and amazing, but in terms of like researchers, it's not our fave. And- Everyone always wants to go there.
1: Sure. So in, in your travels and going to these expected and unexpected places, when was the last time you feel like you were genuinely surprised by th- by something?
2: Mm-hmm. Genuinely surprised. I did a project for Nike exploring basketball in the Philippines. That mm-hmm. lit me up harder than anything. I'm like, A, I love basketball, but it was a project about – it's before the FIBA World Cup, and they're trying to understand like why Filipinos love basketball so much. As they're like the shortest country on Earth, <laughs> which height's five two, and they're like the biggest hoops head there hoops heads there are out there. And I went there, and part of the project was like just understanding kind of like this national love of the game, but half the project was about the rise of the women's game within the country. Mm. Like it's still so deeply patriarchal, right? That women are supposed to be like very. Feminine and ladylike and quiet and like tend to their school and their religion and their families. But there, I met just this subsect of young women trying to change the game there. Like one of them, she and her mom wrote letters every week to her mother superior at her school trying to get a basketball team. Right. Or others were like playing at 11 PM because it's the only time they could get a court. And I think like I cried multiple times. Right. It was just because it was so pure. I think yeah. it's just like. This is so deeply rooted to, like, not just the game, but who these women are trying to be and, who like, where they're trying to push this culture. And I think it's the last time I was surprised because I was so deeply startled by how much passion there was there.
1: Got it. What are the big sports? They're big into boxing, right? I know Manny Pacquiao is, like, a god there. But, I mean, what else do they – soccer, I assume. But what, what else do they play there?
2: Volleyball's a big one. But, mm. like – every neighborhood charlie has their own basketball court that's like the nucleus of the neighborhood so it's directly in the center and then the old church on the basketball court and everyone gets married on the basketball court and like people go to school on the basketball court and it was almost like so blatant as a metaphor that basketball <laughs> is just the center force of everything that they do
1: wow oh, who's your team by the way do you have an nba team
2: i <laughs> do it's the timberwolves which is like such a brutal thing to sign up for year after year it comes from, I mean, Fargo, North Dakota does not exactly have their own team. So I got Minnesota yep. teams by default growing up.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're
2: actually like kind of getting better, which is terrible for a delusional fan. <laughs> I was being like, Wolves back and like Wolves are never fucking back, but they do feel better right now. Who's your yeah. team?
1: Well, I mean, just on the Timberwolves, like I'll tell you more, I'll give you my answer in a sec. but on the Timberwolves, I that was the first time I saw LeBron play because I lived in Minneapolis when I first moved to the US.
2: I didn't and, know that. When yeah. were you in Minneapolis?
1: 07 to
2: 09.
1: Okay, and so I saw LeBron play there. Al Jefferson was on the team. You know, went to the Target Center quite quite a lot actually. And but now to your point, I mean the fact that Ant is there and Ant is sort of the the darling Wunderkind of you know Team USA. Like I think people are looking up to him. I think it's going to become more of a free agent market. I don't I don't love the Rudy addition, but I think the team is allegedly you know very well coached. So I look, you know, I'm optimistic about the the future for the Timbys, as we call them. But um I <laughs> have to
2: admit re- But Ant is such a like so fun to cheer for, right? And like yeah. I mean, Wolves fans haven't had any hope or joy for a long time. And to have that just like injection of charisma and talent at once, everyone was like, whoa, whoa, we are not sure what to do with this all all this optimism that we have right now.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I have it's to fun admit to
2: watch this team again, like very shocking right now.
1: Yeah, I I um I am appalled that they ever went away from that iconic uniform that KG wore and Wally Zerbiak and that era with the little, you know, the the trees on the collar and the sleeves mm-hmm. you know, the, and and that interesting, like distinct type, you know, typeface. I'm like this one right, right they have right now, it's so generic. It's just boring as hell. Anyway, I digress. I was,
2: trying, I was trying to find some gear the other day and I feel like all anyone wants is just them to make more of that vintage stuff and just sell it right now.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I have such such an issue with the NBA because they wheel out this these weird uniforms every year, yeah, and sure. it it really. It, well, first of all, they're bad most of them, so it's, <laughs> yeah, like that's not great. But secondly, I mean, when you think of if you googled Michael Jordan now, right, mm-hmm. an image it, he'd be wearing two jerseys: a black, sorry, a white or red Bulls one. Maybe there's a Team USA in there, right? Yeah. The Dream Team. But yeah. now, if you Google that, like, if you Google Steph Curry, I remember reading a stat. He, in, he's been with the Warriors, you know, since 2011, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's, went, like, north of 50 different jerseys. Like, talk about diluting the brand, right? You know, it'd be like, imagine every time you go to the supermarket, you walk down, you're looking for Tide, and you're looking for the iconic orange, you know, container. And, oh, no, we're purple this week. We're green next week. Anyway, I have strong <laughs> feelings about it. It's a big yeah. sartorial misstep.
2: I deeply agree with that. And I think just your initial point is most of it's ugly that it comes up. Yeah. Like, not like we're introducing beautiful new stuff every year. It's like, feels very forced and kind of ugly.
1: Oh, totally. And just on that, um, who my team is. So I, because the, the, my Australian football team, I support the Fremantle dockers. I mean, they're generally not good. So I'm like, all right, I can't, but it, 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 you know, the, the, the lessons of fandom I've, you know, a hard earned right you can't be a front runner you can't just jump on a a team that's always going to be win you know, i could never bring myself to be a yankees fan for example no but when i moved to the bay in 2016 they, the the warriors went 72 and 9 73 and 9 rather
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i'm like well i can't and then they lost in the finals i remember watching that and i'm like well i can't and then they signed kate kevin durant I'm like mm-hmm. I can't jump on this team. Like it's they're too good. Like it's they're too dominant. Yeah. And so, but then like the personnel. I mean, Draymond, I could take a leave. I mean, he's kind of an interesting guy. But the, you know, from Steph Curry, who I think is the most likable superstar of any sport of my lifetime that that I'm aware of, to Steve Kerr, to Clay, to even Wiggins in a weird way. Like there's such a likable nucleus. And then when they're all injured, and they in the 2019 finals, they lost to. The Raptors. I was really pulling for them. I'm like, oh wow, I guess I'm a Warriors fan now. Then they were terrible the next two. Well, they were terrible the next year. Not bad the year after that. Then they won yeah. the title unexpectedly, and I, I actually went. I went with um, a colleague. So I, I've become since the finals of 2019. I became a Warriors fans when they lost. So it's okay. sort of I feel like some of my some of my fandom is a little bit hard earned because they were pretty bad for the next couple of years before they won. But I'm still a little bit of a Johnny Come Lately fan, really.
2: I'll give you that. Do you think you'll continue to be one when you move to Seattle?
1: Yeah. I I, I mean, unless, the, uh, you know, there's always talk about the Sonics coming back and allegedly they will, but, and they've got the most iconic brand. I, I just love that name. I love the uniforms, but I, I think I'm a Warriors fan for life now just because of the, the emotional turmoil and journey I've been on with them.
2: <laughs> yeah. You're like just stuck in it once you get in it at a certain point. Yeah, I've been Mr. Doug my whole life, and like there's something so delusional about being a Timberwolves fan that I find very charming. Very well,
1: there fun. is a bunch
2: of idiots just showing up for heartbreak every single year. Well, there's also like
1: uh, you know, I had I recently chose a Premier League team in England to follow, and mm-hmm. it, I really agonized it over for a few years because you think like there's only a handful of teams that sort of have a chance of winning, but I've, I've decided to support the one that has a chance of winning that never ends up actually winning, and that's Tottenham. Because, you know, like Manchester City, they were perennial center- cellar dwellers until they were born by the guys from Abu Dhabi, and they, you know, spent more money than God, and yeah. now they win all the time. Because <laughs> they were, like, they were an absolute, you
2: know, line.
1: You know, like, in Man-, Man United were the actual darlings. They won every year. So, it's just funny how, like, just cash- Cash is you know makes a big difference, but it's more this idea of I wanted to choose a non-pathetic underdog, <laughs> and yeah. I, and hopefully I've like landed glimmers
2: there? of joy and hope. I don't want to be beat upon all the time either.
1: Yeah, like the New York Mets should be one of those, but they just seem to botch it because they they have like the highest payroll oftentimes, but then they just seem to botch it year after year. But you know, Sailor la vie.
2: I think um, non like underdog is a good target to aim for. When it comes-
1: <laughs> just in life in general. Yeah,
2: like not dead last, but like bottom 10. Yeah. It to me.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So, um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Meg, but like this has been great chatting. I just, you know, if you had any, any questions for me, um, you know, happy, happy to keep, mm-hmm. keep chatting.
2: I mean, you run, a, you run a podcast called The Furious Curious. What are you curious about right now? Or what do you find yourself gravitating toward topic wise?
1: That's interesting. I mean, I have a little bit of a visceral reaction, not in a bad way, to AI, just because I feel like it is such the wild west. Like mm-hmm. people are crawling all over themselves to talk about it. It's like a few years ago when terms like um big data, terms like digital <laughs> true transformation, true. True. people like saying yeah. these things, they're overused so as to become like utterly meaningless in
2: terms. Yeah,
1: and I feel like even like companies I've noticed have. Rebranding themselves AI, like people, it's just people cannot get enough of it. And but I have seen, just in a personal capacity, using it is. I look at it like, you know, you're walking in an airport and then you get onto those moving walkways and you feel like you're that 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 tailwind that you experience. I'm like, wow, this is like such a liberator of creativity, Mm -hmm. you know, if used correctly, right? Mm -hmm. And I. I'm a glass half full guy on it. I just, you know, my, my interests in it are, you know, selfish. You know, I'm like, okay, how can I use this for, to, you know, equip myself professionally? You know, I, I, I always think in these terms, but you know, there's, I'm a little bit scared, you know, about what the future holds because people who seem to know what they're talking about have a little bit of pause <laughs> around mm-hmm. the future and the need for legislation and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it, it is a fascinating. It's a fascinating to- uh, field, but I'm sort of—I feel like it's so nascent that I don't really trust anyone's POV at this point. Yeah, I, just, I mean, how, how do you, how do you feel about it?
2: I feel like everyone is just banding it around, but I don't actually feel like most people deeply understand it in any sort of fashion. Like everyone seems extremely eager and curious to talk about it, but it doesn't feel like there are very interesting conversations being had around it. How do yeah. you use it personally, or what's been useful? Well,
1: just. Like if I'm sort of having to write a proposal or a scope, you know, a, a deck, get it, get inspiration for a project, I'll go to chat GPT and I'll note, you know, like it's sort of, it's garbage in, garbage out. Like you're only as, you're only, you know, you are the conductor of this orchestra, right? So if you just put in expected things, you're going to get expected things back. <laughs> I mean, I like really going for the oblique. Like I, I had it. And I was just banding this around to send to my friends. I said, write the synopsis for a documentary about a cult that worships Joe Flacco of the Baltimore Mm -hmm. Ravens. Mm -hmm. And it gave, it was such an iron, iron, you know, watertight synopsis. I was like, this is magnificent. (laughs)
2: This is magnificent. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I I said, like, make the case that Balki, Bartokomus should have got his own spinoff show from in the nineties. You know, like, and, and it actually makes a well-reasoned argument. I said, make the case that Johnny Depp actually stole River Phoenix's career when he tragically passed at the Viper room, you know, like little sort of hypotheticals yeah. like this. And it does unlock some kernels of, of insight. I mean, I, um, from time to time, I write satire and I say, mm-hmm. Oh, like punch this up in the voice of, you know, the onion. And I'll, oftentimes it does it. I go, Oh, that's a little wrinkle that I didn't think of, but like. Yeah, It just, it, it, it's all about the prompt and it's all about the taste and the, the inputs as opposed to let let it do the work for me.
2: Yeah. I feel like I'm becoming more of a Luddite builder. I get, <laughs> like, I don't even know that I like phones and computers anymore, but I was with a friend the other night and we we're trying to get out of something we'd agreed to that we didn't want to go to. <laughs> he asked ChatGPT GPT to come up with excuses as to why we couldn't attend this dinner party. And it was like quite useful, Charlie, but I can really see how this could fit into my life.
1: Yeah. I mean, the... the- the thing like, is, oh, I,
2: hadn't even, I hadn't even thought of that one as a reason to get out of this thing that I don't want to go to, <laughs> yeah.
1: And you, especially if it just gives you the expected, oh, my car broke down or I'm feeling sick, or I'm washing my hair. Mm. You go, no, no, get more, get a little more oblique,
2: get a little more interesting with me, please. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, that's um, I think that's a great, great place to end on the future of AI and how it can <laughs> involve our lives. But this has been great, <laughs> this has been great chat, Meg. Oh, uh, you know, pleasure. it's been too long since we caught up, but uh, yeah, well. Definitely, definitely stay in touch. And thanks for thanks for your time today. I think it was a fun Thank conversation. You. And yeah, we'll, you,
2: uh,
1: we'll
0: yeah we'll chat very soon.
2: And okay, bye, Charlie. Have a good one.
0: Yeah, mate, you too, bye. Thank you to Megan Weisenberger for taking time to join us on this podcast to share her insights, her stories, and her thoughts. You can learn more about further and further at furtherandfurtherstrategies.com dot com, which we'll also reference in the show notes. You are listening to the Furious Curious Podcast, hosted and produced by me, Britton Rice, along with Chaz Quark, Chase Domergue, Nicole Lazar, Alex Detmering, and Alexander Wool. Our original logo is by Nate Betts. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash the dash furious dash curious and subscribe to the furious curious podcast on your favorite podcast platform we welcome your comments trollings and of course your constructive feedback and please take a moment to rate the show so more listeners like you can discover us until next time stay curious out